Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 312, King Edward. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. And you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Patrick, Jeff, and Dimitri for signing up already. King Edgar is dead, and in his place reigned his son, King Edward of England. And you'd think we'd be referring to him as King Edward I. Or if you wanted to fudge the dates a little bit and give Edward the Elder some credit for forming the kingdom of the Anglo-Saxons, maybe King Edward II. But that's not what we call him at all. Now personally, I blame the Normans for this. They weren't all that keen on acknowledging the fact that there was this whole other dynasty that existed before they ever set foot in England. But whatever the case, King Edward, much like his grandfather, wasn't given a number. He was given a nickname. Edward the Martyr. Which is a bit of a spoiler. But the story that gets us from King Edward to Edward the Martyr is a lot more sordid and mysterious than even the name might suggest. And Edward was one of our more mysterious kings in general. And what little is known about him isn't flattering. We spoke last episode about how, even at a young age, he was infamous for his temper. And how often he would aim that temper at those closest to him. And how many of those same people came to fear for the kingdom of England, should he ever come to the throne. Well, here he was, on the throne. And the resistance that he met in acquiring the crown meant that he was actually in a very weak political position. Weak even in comparison to many of his predecessors. Which is really saying something, because the House of Wessex had a history of arriving at the crown from a weak position. Civil war and usurpation were basically part of the job description, but Edward seems to have had it worse than most. And this wasn't helped by the fact that things in the kingdom were going poorly. That fight over the throne hadn't done anyone any favors. The Chronicle tells us of a kingdom in absolute crisis, with nobles running roughshod over their own subjects and breaking God's laws. Factions of the aristocracy were driving monks from their religious houses, quashing monastic rule, dissolving minsters. The Chronicle describes how nobles were putting down God's servants, whatever that means, and plundering the widows over and over again, which I think is exactly what it sounds like. Now, the scribes were careful to note that this was the nobles who were doing this, not Edward. But they also point out that the nobles were able to do this because Edward was unable to control them due to his youth. And thus, they tell us, quote, Many wrongs and evil lawless acts rose up afterwards, and ever after, that it grew much worse, end quote. It appears that after the death of Edgar, who had been ruling the kingdom with a firm hand, the nobility were now taking advantage of an uncertain succession and then a young king to strike at some of their rivals. And these were the Anglo-Saxons. This was the same group of people who were forced to invent the Guild as a way to keep their kingdoms from collapsing into unending blood feuds. These people knew how to hold a grudge, and they had plenty of rivals. So while stronger kings had managed to contain the petty disputes of their nobles, this child king backed by a fractured court, was no match for what was bubbling under the surface. England, under King Edward, 
was descending into the Lord of the Flies. And it was during this period that Elderman Oslak of Northumbria was exiled from England and was replaced by a man named Thorred. Now, at first blush, this might look like the first hint that Edward was starting to get his feet under him and was beginning to enforce the laws by putting a stop to the predations that were occurring across England. I mean, the timing certainly suggests that. But if you look closely at the way the scribes were describing Oslak, we start to see a different story. You see, you would assume that if Oslak was one of the agents of chaos, one of the people who were engaging in the attacks against the minsters and the widows and the monks, well, then the scribes would be using really harsh language when they talked about him. But they didn't. Instead, the scribes describe his wisdom and his greatness and how valiant he was. They talk about how terrible it was that he was bereft of his lands. The scribes of the Chronicle appear to have been in Oslak's corner. In fact, every version of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle found one way or another to voice their disapproval for what happened to Oslak. And that's remarkable, considering that the Chronicle's audience was the House of Wessex, Edward's house. And we have so many versions of the Chronicle and so many scribes, it tends to be kind of rare to find consistency. But they are consistent here. They all think that Oslak was done dirty and didn't deserve to be exiled. And so in this period where the kingdom was dissolving into violence and petty disputes, we have Oslak, an apparently honorable man who was beloved by scribes everywhere, being singled out and exiled. Why? Well, it's likely that Elderman Oslak was part of the faction that supported Edward's brother, Prince Athelred. Oslak was a powerful elderman, and he was one of King Edgar's trusted companions so he likely was one of those close courtiers who had direct experience with Edward's rage. And then he gets exiled. This smacks of political retribution. And I can absolutely imagine that this sort of vengeance would have appealed to Edward. He was young. He was pretty clearly insecure. He was unable to control even his own nobles. And he was already deeply unpopular. Furthermore, He'd been raised by a man who was famous for constantly threatening to fight the biggest guy in the room and for trying to duel the King of Scotland. With that sort of background, it's not hard to imagine that King Edward would have lashed out in an attempt to look strong. But the trouble with crackdowns and with talking tough is that that's not what real strength looks like. It's what weakness looks like. And I'm sure that there were people in England who knew that people who could have told him about how his uncle Edwig's downfall had begun with an exile just like this one. But who was going to tell him? The combination of a horrific temper and near-unlimited power meant that Edward wasn't likely to get good counselors who were willing to give him blunt, honest advice. The people who surrounded him were likely either sycophants who told him what he wanted to hear, or gifted manipulators who knew how to use his inexperience to push their own agendas. All, you know, while telling him what he wanted to hear. Because you do not openly contradict an insecure leader with anger management issues if you want to keep your position. And that might be exactly why Oslak was out. But to be fair, it's also possible that this wasn't Edward at all. Something to keep in mind here is that Edward was about 13 years old. He wasn't yet a man, even by Dark Age standards. And as such it's entirely possible that he was being heavily managed by the more powerful nobles of the kingdom. Nobles, incidentally, who had their own scores to settle. 
I mean, these were the Anglo-Saxons. So this stupid move very well might have been the brainchild of one of the members of Edward's Witan, someone who had a feud with Oslak and saw an opportunity and took it, and to hell with the fallout that the king might suffer as a result. It's entirely possible, and therefore, it's genuinely hard to know whether this was the actions of a young, vengeful king or his manipulative counselors. But either way, the expulsion of Oslak and his replacement by Thorred was an exercise in weakness. And I think everyone knew it, because for a brief moment, the chronicle virtually turns into a praise poem for Oslak. And when even the scribes are openly grumbling about your reign, and are talking about how everyone liked the guy you just exiled, and they're doing this in your family's propaganda book, well, you're in some pretty serious trouble. And Oslak wasn't the only elderman who was replaced. There was also the new elderman, Athelweird, the chronicler, who was appointed as the elderman of the Western territories. So probably the Western peninsula of Greater Wessex. And alongside him were two other relatively unknown eldermen who were appointed over other portions of Greater Wessex. So this means that Edward's first year was marked with turnover at the highest levels of his government all throughout the South and the North. And we aren't told what happened to the previous eldermen, but I can't help but wonder if they'd been forcibly removed, just like Oslak had been. England had suddenly come under new management. And then, at harvest time, a comet appeared in the sky. And this was the medieval era. Comets were a big deal. And you better believe that the scribes, who managed to find meaning even in a load of dead ducks, were gonna start asking questions when one of the f***ing stars fell out of the sky. I mean, was this a sign of divine support? Or divine condemnation? It wasn't clear. But like any good investigator, they would need to start triangulating the evidence. And the state of the harvest would make a pretty good data point to add to this. And it just so happened that England was looking at an incredibly bad harvest for that year. Now, we know today that bad harvests don't require divine retribution. And they can be the result of normal variations in weather patterns. Or more serious results of broader climate change. Or any number of plant blights. Or lots of other things that we try to not think about, because then we'd have to acknowledge how fragile our food system is. But there's all kinds of ways you could have a bad harvest. But in the case of this particular harvest, the bad yields were likely the result of the ugly civil war that had been raging through the region. If you have a bunch of warbands out there seizing lands, attacking monks, probably raping widows, and doing God knows what else to the land and the people, what fields were actually left we're going to have all that many people out there tending to them. It's a pretty straightforward problem that doesn't require any spiritual explanation. But for the scribes, it was quite clear what was happening. God was angry at how his laws had been violated. And while they were careful to put the blame on the nobles who were taking advantage of Edward's youth, the fact still remained that Edward was king and God was pissed. And sure enough, in 976... England saw the Great Famine, and we're also told that there was widespread unrest all throughout England. Yeah, I bet there was. But unfortunately, we're not given details regarding this widespread unrest, nor are we told about any of the measures that were taken in putting it down. Were the peasants striking? Were they in open rebellion? Were the nobles raising war bands and fighting amongst themselves? Did they institute the purge? 
Don't know. The scribes just tell us that there was widespread unrest and leave it at that. However, looking at the other sources, we do see indications of a weak king who is struggling to maintain his hold on power. For example, during this same period, the control on the royal mints was breaking down. While Edward's father was reigning, all the coinage was created out of dyes that were cut in the royal capital of Winchester. But under Edward, that policy had been abandoned, and Lincoln and York were allowed to make their own dyes. So they weren't just making coins, they were making the dyes that made the coins. This would be like if the U.S. got a new president, and immediately afterwards, Texas decided to not just make their own mint, but they started to make their own special Texas dollar bills. If that happened, you might start to think that the American presidency wasn't what it used to be. Currency was a major tool of royal power, and Edward had just relinquished his exclusive control over it and granted it to the Dane law. That is not a sign of strength. We're also seeing signs that Edward wasn't really an effective king. Edward's predecessors, and spoilers here, Edward's successors, provide us with a wealth of charters from their reigns. And these charters don't just give us an important window into the political goings-on of England. They're also, on a very basic level, a reflection of the amount of work the king was doing. And as far as Edward's charters, you could fit all of them comfortably in an envelope with room to spare. Now, it is unwise to expect a lot out of a teenager for his first job, but the record seems pretty clear here that we're not just looking at a weak king, we're also seeing an ineffective one. But life goes on, and even if you've got a bad king, and even if your kingdom is experiencing widespread unrest, the powerful figures of the realm still expect the crown to hold regular Watanagamots. And so... In the following year of 977, shortly after Easter, things were stable enough for the king to hold a great council at Kirtlington in Oxford. The king's Witan was present, as were major figures of the clergy, including Sidaman, the Bishop of Devonshire. Now, Bishop Sidaman and King Edward had a long history. He was King Edward's tutor back in the day. He'd known him since he was a child. So it's not all that surprising that he would be there for this Watanagamont, quite possibly Edward's first Watanagamont. And we're told that during this council, Bishop Sidaman suffered, quote, a sudden death, end quote. A sudden death? What does that even mean? I really don't know. And I find it very interesting that Bishop Sidaman was the Bishop of Devon. Because do you remember who else was from Devon? Edward's stepmother, Lady Elfthrith. And if you remember back to last episode, during that civil war that was raged on behalf of the two brothers, Edward and Athelred, Devon was a political hardpoint for the pro-Athelred faction of the House of Wessex. And then we have this Witanagamot, what appears to be Edward's first Witanagamot. And the bishop who governed over that territory just, whoops, suddenly dies right in the middle of it. Now, people die. And this was a pretty stressful time. Maybe you just had a heart attack. After all, this was well before the invention of the defibrillator. But this king was also known for his violence. And it wasn't just any bishop who died in the king's presence. It was this one. That's weird. And what follows is even weirder. We're told that King Edward, who was probably about 15 years old at this point, 
knew that Bishop Sidemon wanted to be buried at his Episcopal see, at Crediton. But instead, Edward demanded that the bishop be buried at the nearby abbey at Abingdon. And remember, Sidemon wasn't just the Bishop of Devonshire, which alone should have commanded a certain amount of respect. He was also Edward's childhood tutor. Why wasn't the king following his wishes? Did Bishop Sidemon do or say something that displeased the king? Was this a final spiteful revenge? Or was this something more mundanely selfish, like the fact that Abingdon was just easier to get to and a lot more convenient? I mean, it is possible that Edward was just trying to avoid the trouble of getting the body back to Devon. But then again, that doesn't make all that much sense because it's not like Edward was carrying the body himself. He dispatched men to do it. Men, by the way, who apparently felt so bad about the whole thing that they tried to at least find him a place of honor in the abbey, near St. Paul's porch. But, unfortunately, without more information, we can't really know why the king disregarded Sidemon's request. Nor can we know what caused his mysterious sudden death. But placed alongside the rest of the evidence, England isn't looking particularly stable. And then, in the following year of 978, there was another Watanagamot. This one was located at Caen in Wiltshire. And all the most senior nobles of England came to the council, including even Archbishop Dunstan, who was really getting up there in years. But this was a major event for the country, and it appears to have been a really important Watanagamot for young Edward because based on the timing of it, he was probably 16 years old. Which means that this was likely the first Watanagamot where he sat amongst his advisors and the most senior nobility as no longer a child, but a grown man. His power had now fully blossomed. Now, we're not given a detailed description of this council at Khan. We don't know why it was called, what the plan was, what was to be discussed. We don't have any of that. But it appears that in preparation for the event, Edward instructed the most learned and powerful men of England to gather in the upper level of the building. And then, quote, all the chief counselors of the English people fell, end quote. That kind of comes out of nowhere, doesn't it? And it sounds as if the building itself had collapsed, with most of the Witanicomont falling with it. We're told that many members of the Witan were seriously injured, and some were even killed. Only one man among them truly escaped, because the Chronicle tells us that, quote, Holy Archbishop Dunstan stood alone on a beam, end quote. Apparently, in addition to being a serious Benedictine reformer, he was also a gifted tumbler. But for the rest of the Watanagamot, many of them old men, they fell, crashing into the floors below. As for King Edward, well, he doesn't look like he was there. Maybe he hadn't arrived yet, or maybe it was just on a different floor. I really don't know, but it's clear from the description of the fall that he wasn't on the upper floor when everyone else was. And I don't know what happened there. Now granted, there's no indication that this was foul play. We don't have a record talking about how Edward ordered his personal guard to push the council off the balcony, or something like that. We're just told that they fell which is why it tends to be assumed that this was a structural collapse. But even so, a catastrophe like that, on the heels of the death of the Bishop of Devon, which itself was on the heels of a famine, which itself was on the heels of a brutal civil war that involved the ousters of monks, seizures of land, and the plunder of widows, 
Well, you can imagine that people were starting to see a pattern here. And considering that this king's most notable achievement appears to have been inspiring fear in those around him, especially those of his inner circle, because he, quote, attacked them not only with words, but with truly dire blows, end quote, you can imagine that they might have started to feel like they backed the wrong horse. After all, this was an era known for its superstition, and you don't need to be Nostradamus to spot the signs here. Even Unferth would have known what was going on. This kid was a jinx, or possibly Damien. And regardless of whether or not this was actually all just a lot of incredibly bad luck, the fact was that it was causing Edward's approval rating to tank. He had only been on the throne for three years, but they had been incredibly difficult years. And as such, he can't have been a popular king. Which leaves me wondering what version A of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle said about all of this. After all, that's the oldest version of the Chronicle, and as such, it was the closest to these events. So we can assume that it probably will give us a sense of what the nobility thought of Edward. So here's version A. Quote, 978. In this year, King Edward was killed. End quote. Wait, what? Killed? They specifically use the word offslagen, killed. They don't say Mithridon, that's murdered, and they don't say Aquilon, died. No, offslagen. Edward was killed. So how did that go down? Was there a fight? Was he attacked? And by who? There were plenty of people who would have benefited from his death. His stepmother, his half-brother, the numerous courtiers who had served as his punching bags, the supporters of Oslak, or maybe just one of the eldermen who was injured at the recent Watanagamont. Edward was not lacking in enemies. And surely, there must be some other documents that will help explain this, right? Well, there are. And we'll talk about them next time on the BHP. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter. You can find us at British Podcast, and we're all over the place, and you can find links to all our communities by going to the community section of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening.